Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about underactive thyroid, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune condition, and where this fits into your fatigue or chronic fatigue recovery journey. Even if you don't have an underactive thyroid, or even if you've don't have an autoimmune thyroid condition, it still might be helpful for you to listen to this podcast because one of the things I'm going to talk about is proper screening. And I'll talk about it in the beginning, so it means you don't have to necessarily listen to the whole podcast if you don't have the time and the energy. But because our thyroid function is a huge factor when it comes to having enough energy, it's something that we want to properly screen ourselves for even if it's just to like say this is not a problem for me move on to the next thing it's really important that we properly screen in the beginning of our fatigue recovery journey so you may just want to listen to that piece and then move on apart from that just a reminder to leave a review if you have been listening to and enjoying the podcast you can also follow or subscribe to the podcast and I would greatly appreciate it. It would make my day so much. So onto the show. I will just introduce the concept today by first and foremost talking about the thyroid gland. So the thyroid gland is a small butterfly-shaped hormonal gland or endocrine gland, which is located at the front of the neck, just below the Adam's apple, if you're a man. And it plays a crucial role in regulating various body functions by producing hormones that control metabolism, growth and development, specifically thyroxine, also known as T4, and triiodothyronine, which is also known as T3. These hormones are released into the bloodstream and they have a widespread impact on every single cell in the body, which is why thyroid function and optimal thyroid function is really important in terms of health and energy. They influence the rate at which we use energy, so they influence our metabolism. They affect things like our heart rate, our body temperature, our digestion, our brain function, even our mood, just to name a few different things. And the production of these hormones is regulated in a feedback loop. So what that means is that the brain, specifically the hypothalamus in the brain, sends a signal to the pituitary gland, and then the pituitary gland then sends a signal to the thyroid gland, which is TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and then TSH stimulates the thyroid to produce these T4 and T3 hormones. Well, the thyroid gland produces T4, the body then converts T4 to T3, and T3 is the active hormone that binds to the receptor site and allows cells to do whatever they need to do in the body. And so when the levels of T4 and T3 in the bloodstream are appropriate, then that will send signals back up to the brain, and then the brain will therefore regulate the amount of thyroid-stimulating hormone being produced. If, for example, T4 and T3 are too low because the thyroid is unable to produce adequate amounts, we'll see TSH 
go up, thyroid stimulating hormone will go up to try and encourage more production. But if for whatever reason we've got very high levels of T3 and T4, then we may see a decrease in TSH. So we're trying to sort of slow down or apply the brakes on thyroid hormone production. And that can often be associated with symptoms of hyperthyroidism. So imbalances in the production of these thyroid hormones are what leads to health issues. When our thyroid is overactive and too many hormones are being produced, as I've just described, we can have hyperthyroidism, which can look like or show up in symptoms like weight loss, a rapid heart rate, nervousness and irritability. And even if you're someone who's more prone to a kind of underactive thyroid or you're someone who's experiencing an underactive thyroid, it's still helpful to know these symptoms for reasons I'll describe later. Or we can have, on the other hand, a thyroid gland which is underactive and produces too little of these hormones. And that can cause symptoms like fatigue, weight gain, depression, sensitivity to cold, and many other symptoms. So because of the relationship between thyroid function and symptoms like fatigue, it's really important at the very least that we screen thyroid function properly as we begin our fatigue recovery journey so that we can rule it in or out as an issue. And this is where I'd like to talk a little bit more about what proper screening actually entails. So what does proper screening of the thyroid involve? Well, let me start first and foremost by describing the traditional medical model. And how this usually works is that thyroid stimulating hormone, TSH, is used to assess thyroid dysfunction. Elevated TSH can indicate a hypothyroid or underactive state, or low levels of TSH can indicate a hyperthyroid or overactive state. And then obviously one can also assess levels of T4 and T3 and make sure that they're optimal as well. But generally speaking, most clinicians will be making decisions based on TSH. TSH is found to be high, indicating underactive thyroid. Thyroid hormones may be prescribed so that we can normalize TSH. However, 90% of adults with underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism are experiencing hypothyroidism as a result of an autoimmune condition known as Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or I'll probably just refer to this as Hashimoto's for the rest of the podcast. And this is diagnosed through the presence of thyroid antibodies, specifically antithyroid peroxidase antibodies, so anti-TPO antibodies, and antithyroglobulin antibodies. So some people can test positive for these antibodies, but have a normal TSH. So what that means on a traditional thyroid screen, which may just be TSH or TSH and T4, everything can look normal, but this person, because they haven't tested their thyroid antibodies, may not know that there is an underlying autoimmune condition. So therefore, Proper screening involves testing for TSH 
and thyroid antibodies. That's the anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies and the anti-thyroglobulin antibodies. Now you may have, if you've seen your doctor because you have a chronic illness, you have fatigue, you may have gone to your doctor, one of the things they've probably done is screened your thyroid, but did they test your antibodies or did they test your TSH only? If they test TSH only and that was normal and it may be absolutely fine and this may not be a problem for you at all, but it is worth testing antibodies just in case. So when may we want to consider screening? Well, the main symptoms of underactive thyroid include fatigue, top of the list, but also symptoms like dry hair, a puffy face, actual swelling of the neck or an enlarged thyroid, a very slow heartbeat, arthritis, cold intolerance, loss of eyebrow hair, usually the last third of the eyebrow, low mood, depression, dry skin, forgetfulness, menstrual disorders, infertility, muscle aches, weight gain, constipation, and brittle nails. But here's another plot twist. 90% of people who test positive for thyroid antibodies may not show any of these symptoms, or these symptoms may not, the symptoms that they are experiencing may not be on this list because if they have a thyroid autoimmune condition, then this is a, an imbalance of the immune system, which is impacting the whole body, not necessarily the thyroid. So when we're looking at any autoimmune condition, although there are tissue-specific antibodies, which may be impacting specific tissues, like in this case, the thyroid, it's an immune issue. And an immune issue, which is maybe impacting certain organs more so than others. But at the end of the day, there's an immune dysregulation, which we need to address, which is why if you're somebody who is experiencing chronic fatigue or chronic health challenges, you want to test your TSH and your thyroid antibodies or have a conversation with your doctor about this where you can use a private testing company like Medichex to test for your antibodies so that you can know even if your thyroid function is normal maybe you actually do have the underlyings of an autoimmune condition and then that helps to inform the decision making in terms of how you move forward and support your body because I would support somebody with an autoimmune condition very differently to somebody who was more like a post-viral chronic fatigue person. So it's really important that we understand what's going on in the body because it influences decision-making processes and it also influences our expectations about what results can we expect, what's the prognosis. It's really helpful, even if it is at the very least, just to rule these things out. It's helpful to do the antibody screening. So let's say you had some symptoms, you measured your TSH, you measured your antibodies, and your TSH was elevated, you test positive for antibodies, you have an autoimmune thyroid condition, is hormone replacement therapy the answer? And the short of it is yes and. So if your TSH is elevated, then you need hormone replacement therapy to help your thyroid hormones level out. 
And in some cases, that might be T4 replacement. In some cases, it might be T3 replacement. In some cases, it might be a combination of T4 and T3. And that's where you need to work with an appropriately trained endocrinologist or medical doctor who will prescribe these medications and oversee your case as you're adjusting your dosages so that they can be completely optimized. And in the beginning, you really want to be testing probably every three months, six months at least, um, to make sure that you are optimizing your hormone levels. Many people can experience a great improvement in their symptoms when they take hormone replacement therapy. And over time, however, symptoms can return. And this is what we refer to as the honeymoon period. So there's a period of time, you find out there's a thyroid issue, you take the hormones, you feel much better, but then all of a sudden it feels like you're regressing and things are going backwards. And this is true not only for thyroid hormone replacement therapy, it can also be true if you're on testosterone replacement therapy or estrogen replacement therapy or progesterone replacement therapy. And the reason why things return to normal or the reason why symptoms can return is because there may be ongoing consequences of the systemic autoimmunity, which still needs to be addressed. So if you find that you need to regularly increase the dosage of your thyroid hormones, if you're finding it difficult to stabilize your TSH, that can be a clue, at least, that there's more work to do and more work to be done on getting your immune system under control and getting the autoimmunity under control. So that's where I'd like to go into now more with this episode is really talking more about autoimmunity, specifically Hashimoto's thyroiditis, so thyroid autoimmunity, and what we really want to consider in this case. So when we're looking at any type of autoimmune situation, there are three stages of autoimmunity. The first is the silent stage. So this is where there are antibodies present and there are no symptoms. And if you were to screen yourself and you tested positive for thyroid antibodies, you could potentially be in a situation where you don't have any symptoms. But if you do identify with any of the symptoms that I've talked about today, then you're probably not in a silent stage. You could be more in what we would call a reactive stage. So reactive autoimmunity is when there are antibodies and symptoms. We can see that now there's no longer just some antibodies knocking around the body, not doing very much. These antibodies are actually having an impact on the body and that's manifesting as some of the physical symptoms. And again, if we're in a reactive stage, the goal is to either keep the body there or achieve some sort of remission. And then finally, the third stage is destruction. So when there's destructive autoimmunity, that's when there's antibodies and tissue destruction. So this is what we will probably see if there's an elevated TSH, there's symptoms, and there's antibodies, which are all present because the elevated TSH is telling us the thyroid gland is struggling to produce adequate hormones, hence the reason why TSH is high, probably because there is some sort of thyroid hormone destruction. So if you're in silent autoimmunity, maybe you would test positive for antibodies, you'd have a normal TSH, no symptoms. Reactive autoimmunity, there's maybe positive antibodies, 
TSH is normal, but there's symptoms. And then in destructive autoimmunity, there's symptoms, raised TSH, and the presence of antibodies. And if you are somebody who is in stage three, that's when you need hormone replacement therapy because we need to normalize TSH as a starting point for then other work that we need to do on the immune system to support the immune dysregulation as a whole. It's not as simple as just taking the hormone replacement therapy and being like, right, sorted, done and dusted, let me continue with my life because you may have a honeymoon period and then you may fall back into a place where you become symptomatic again because the symptoms are coming from the immune dysregulation, not only the thyroid dysfunction, which is being managed by the hormone replacement therapy. But what if you aren't in the destructive phase? What if you don't need hormone replacement therapy yet? Then what do you do? What we're trying to do with autoimmunity is understand first and foremost that there are there's no cure, but there's a lot that we can do with diet, lifestyle, and environmental factors that can either stabilize the immune system and prevent further destruction or prevent a reactive autoimmunity becoming destructive, or if there's silent autoimmunity, prevent it from progressing further at any point in time. And so this is why the screening is really important because wherever you are in terms of the stages of autoimmunity, there's a possibility to create some remission and there's also the possibility to take a preventative approach and prevent future destruction. But it comes with the understanding that hormone replacement therapy on its own is not enough. We need to think of this as an immune issue, not just a thyroid and a thyroid hormone issue. So to understand that in a little bit more detail, where I'd like to go next is just to talk about the different systems that may become dysregulated when there is thyroid autoimmunity. And thyroid hormones impact all body systems, and therefore there are many different webs of thyroid dysfunction. And depending on the individual, each person will have their own web, and we need to unpick these webs slowly systematically in a way that is specific for the individual. There's no Hashimoto's protocol where it's just do X, Y, and Z and you're sorted. We need to do a thorough case history. We need to do a thorough exploration of the case. We need to work out how the body is being impacted specifically for this individual and then address those specific imbalances in a way that is personalized to the human being who is managing their health and managing the challenges that they're facing. But in a sort of brief summary kind of way, the thyroid gland impacts the immune system. So although the immune system may be the source of the problem in an autoimmune condition, there's also a vicious cycle whereby thyroid dysfunction creates further immune dysregulation. And that's through a variety of different mechanisms, which I, I won't go into detail on, but just understanding that how we start to break that cycle is to offer hormone replacement therapy. So if we can normalize TSH, we can take away some of the immune dysregulation that's being created by the thyroid dysfunction. But then there may be other work that we need to do to support the immune system like working on the different barriers, for example, the gut barrier, the blood-brain barrier, the lung barrier, the nasal barriers. 
We may need to support regulatory T cells. We may need to increase antioxidants. We may need to reduce inflammation. We may need to support the ability of the dendritic cells and the macrophages that influence the immune decisions. And there's lots of stuff that we can do to support this, but it does depend on what the individual needs. Then the thyroid gland can also impact the brain. And two of the most common symptoms of underactive thyroid are fatigue and depression. And so this could all be happening due to brain-derived mechanisms. TPO antibodies can bind to immune cells in the brain and generate neuroinflammation. And it's also common for people with thyroid antibodies to have antibodies for neurological tissue. So it can be really helpful if you're somebody who is symptomatic, does have some neurological symptoms, you know you already have a thyroid autoimmunity, to do a test like the Cyrex RA5 to screen for neurological autoimmunity as well. Overall, somebody who has an autoimmune condition will have generally have a very low antioxidant status just because of the huge demand on the antioxidant systems because of the autoimmunity and the immune dysregulation. But that low antioxidant status can then feed into inflammation and immune dysregulation in the brain. And then that impacts brain health and neurotransmitter function and ultimately results in fatigue and low mood. So screening for neurological antibodies should be encouraged, but if there are brain-related symptoms, we want to do you know, all the things that I've spoken about on previous episodes that we know we, we need to do for brain health. So it may be looking at a ketogenic diet, it may be taking certain supplements, making sure sleep is good, blood sugar is good, we're oxygenating the body really well. And if you want to find out more on brain health specifically, I've got a couple of episodes where I talk about this which you can go and take a look at. So the next is also to consider the gut. And the gut has been associated with Hashimoto's in the sense that when there's a decreased diversity of commensal bacteria, so these are like good bacteria species in the gut, this tends to be associated with Hashimoto's. And so when we have poor diversity in the gut, this affects the tolerance of the immune system, whether that is our oral tolerance to food or our overall immune tolerance, which when somebody is experiencing autoimmunity, they've essentially lost tolerance to self. In addition to this, there may also be increased risk of gallstones or sludge due to poor gallbladder contraction. And that can lead to decreased bile salt release. It can lead to decreased vitamin A and vitamin D, which are important nutrients for regulating the immune system. So we've kind of caught in again in this vicious cycle where there's poor thyroid hormone function because there's an autoimmune dysregulation. And then that's impacting the contractility of the gallbladder. And then the poor contractility of the gallbladder is influencing the absorption of nutrients, which are really important to regulate the immune system. So that's why we need hormone replacement therapy to kind of break the cycle. But then we may need to think, do, does this person need more vitamin A? Do they need more vitamin D? 
Is there ongoing reduced gut motility? Are there additional challenges, like for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? So there's this relationship where the autoimmunity is affecting the gut and the gut is affecting the autoimmunity. And we kind of want to identify what imbalances are there specific to the individual and then how we address them. Then the next thing to consider would also be blood sugar regulation. So if somebody is prone to low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, this can result in an increased demand on the adrenal glands to produce catecholamines and cortisol, and they release stored glucose, and also the stored glucose gets released into the bloodstream, but then we also need an insulin surge to take that sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells where it's needed. So then we can have insulin surges which trigger inflammatory responses and exacerbate autoimmunity. Conversely, if someone is prone to high blood sugar, every time they eat, they're probably having high insulin. And this, again, can increase inflammation and increase autoimmunity. Therefore, and I think I talk about this almost, on almost every episode these days, but we need to stabilize blood sugar to manage the autoimmunity. Taking hormone replacement therapy is not enough if you're someone who's hypo or hyperglycemic, you need to address that dysglycemia to address the overall pattern of the autoimmunity. And there could also be additional complications to this picture. So once somebody has got one autoimmune condition, if the immune dysregulation is not contained, then they are predisposed to the development of other autoimmune conditions. And so if there's then pancreatic autoimmunity, the pancreas being the organ in the body that produces insulin and glucagon for blood sugar control, or there's adrenal autoimmunity, which is affecting the cortisol and catecholamine increases, which are required to stabilize low blood sugar, then we're going to have a really tough time getting blood sugar and insulin surges under control. And this is where it can be really helpful just to do something like a Cyrex RA5, get a complete picture of all the different autoimmune conditions that, well, that could potentially be impacting the case. And then that can really help with clinical decision making, especially if blood sugar control is something that you're really struggling with. And then the next thing we want to consider is the liver. And the liver is where the body converts thyroid hormone T4 to the active thyroid hormone T3. So the next thing we may also want to consider is the liver, because the liver is where we convert T4 to T3. But we also need adequate levels of these thyroid hormones so the liver works well and then actually creates that conversion. So low levels of thyroid hormones impair the conversion of T4 to T3, and then we get subsequent reduction of thyroid hormones. And again, this is why we need hormone replacement therapy to break some of these cycles. But systemic inflammation can also upregulate cells in the liver, known as the cup first cells, and that can also drive the loss of tolerance and food sensitivities. And then reactions to food proteins can cross-react with human tissue and further exacerbate autoimmunity. So I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We might also get poor clearance of hormones, metabolites, toxic compounds, and overall the chemical burden of the body is increased. Then when we've got a higher chemical burden in the body, we have higher oxidative stress, we have higher inflammation, and all of this is just negatively impacting the clinical picture. 
And so liver support and detoxification, those are factors that we may also want to consider when there is a thyroid autoimmunity case. And then the final kind of big organ system which is impacted is the female hormone system. So poor thyroid function impacts female hormone production, and that can be a consequence or cause infertility. It can also just cause poor clearance of hormones from the body, which leads to estrogen dominance, which can be a factor in infertility, but also things like miscarriages or just very heavy periods, very painful periods or abnormal menstrual cycles. There can also be cyclical related highs and lows. So there can be flares in Hashimoto's symptoms at times in the cycle where hormones are higher or lower, depending on what's going on with the individual. So we also need to consider thyroid hormones in the context of the female hormone system. So hopefully what I've shared so far has communicated to you that this is more than just hormone replacement therapy issue. Yes, hormone replacement therapy is a really important part of the process of stabilizing the system and getting the autoimmunity under control. But we want to be thinking about the brain. We want to be thinking about the liver. We want to be thinking about blood sugar. We want to be thinking about what else the immune system needs. We want to be thinking about the gut. We want to be thinking about female hormones. And it's a whole very complex intertwined web. And this is why we need a personalized approach to healthcare, because we need to work out what's going on in your web. And what are the most important things that you need to address to get the best possible health outcomes, whatever that looks like for you. So in the rest of this episode, what I'll go into is just how do we start to, I guess, unpack the web? How do we start to support the thyroid gland? And the first thing I'll say is that, and I've said this a few times, so just to reiterate, is that proper care needs to be overseen by a qualified medical professional who can prescribe hormone replacement therapy, whether that's T4 or T3 or a combination of T4 and T3. And this needs to be regularly monitored so that we can check that the TSH levels are stable and the optimal dosage is recommended. And so qualified medical professional is not someone like me. I am a nutritional therapist. I work with diet, lifestyle, supplements, environmental interventions, but I cannot prescribe or give guidance on medications. You need a medical doctor to oversee this. And so that's something that needs to be outsourced. But once somebody is on their thyroid medication, a hormone replacement therapy, and it's stable, they're not needing to constantly increase or decrease, then we also just want to think about that someone isn't being over-medicated. So over-medicating can look like hypothyroid symptoms. So if someone is getting heart palpitations, if they're getting an increased heart rate, if there's sweating or flushing or heat intolerance or feeling of trembling inside or muscle loss or insomnia or increased bowel motility, those are all signs that someone is potentially being over-medicated. And again, this is where you need to work with your medical professional to stabilize your thyroid medication so that you can feel stable. And then once you've done that, then we can start to think about some diet, lifestyle, and environmental interventions. And a big part of autoimmunity in general is identifying dietary triggers. So for thyroid autoimmunity specifically, gluten is a big one. 
the majority of people with an autoimmune thyroid condition will either be gluten sensitive or celiac. So it's worth screening for this. Just generally for autoimmunity, high intakes of sodium can also cause flares. So perhaps you're at home, you're eating really well, and then you go out for a meal and the meal is healthy. Maybe it's gluten-free, dairy-free, paleo, vegan, whatever, but it's just very, very salty. That could cause or potentially cause an autoimmune flare. So we want to be aware of high amounts of sodium. Iodine, iodine in supplements or salt, which has large amounts of iodine is really detrimental for Hashimoto's. In some cases, people may even need to go on a low iodine diet to stabilize their thyroid. So that's something to consider. Other things to consider might be things like grains, dairy, food-specific cross-reactivity, a pro-inflammatory diet, lack of diversity in the diet, lectins in the diet, or even just things like pesticides and chemicals which could be on your food that could potentially be driving an autoimmune response. So what I'd like to explain here is this concept of dietary protein cross-reactivity. So I mentioned already that many people who test positive for thyroid antibodies will react to gluten, whether that is celiac disease, which is where someone has a positive tissue transglutaminase 2, or gluten sensitivity. So somebody who tests positive for trans tissue transglutaminase 2 may also react to foods which are known as gluten cross-reactive foods. So these are foods that have a similar protein sequence to gluten and therefore through molecular mimicry can be mistaken by the body for gluten and then cause a similar inflammatory response even when someone is eating gluten-free. And the main foods that do this would be dairy, corn, certain grains like gluten-free grains like oats or rice or amaranth or buckwheat or quinoa, but also hemp, potato, sesame, sorghum, tapioca, teff and quinoa. So these could potentially be a lot of foods that people who are now eating gluten-free are eating to make up for their gluten-free diet. So in which cases it can be really helpful for somebody to follow an autoimmune diet or in some cases an autoimmune paleo diet to help to get their autoimmunity under control. Then additionally, just to make things even more complicated, we can also have foods which cross-react with T4 and T3 thyroid hormones. So that basically means if you're producing antibodies to these hormones, then if you are then eating foods that have a similar protein sequence and you have a food sensitivity to those foods, you can then have a, they can be triggering for the autoimmune response. Now, I do have the list of foods here in front of me, and there's probably about 30 or 40 different foods. So I'm not going to read them all out, but what I will explain is, even though there's 30 or 40 different foods here, you don't have to avoid all 30 or 40 foods. The process would be to do a food sensitivity test, see if you are sensitive to any of those any foods. Some people may be sensitive to a lot of foods. Some people may be sensitive to very few foods. I'd say there were just a few foods on the list, but those foods cross-reacted with something that you're already producing antibodies to, then you would want to avoid those cross-reactive foods. So for the most part, I think for people who are on a budget, they don't have necessarily a budget to do a full celiac panel or to do a full food sensitivity test, 
the best place to start would be to do a paleo diet, see how you feel. If you feel that you could still feel better, you could do like autoimmune paleo diets. And then if you still don't feel better on an autoimmune paleo diet, then maybe it's the time to bring out the big bucks and do some food sensitivity testing and just see if there's some random cross-reactive foods that are influencing your immune system. So those are some of the dietary things that we can do. We also want to identify lifestyle triggers. So the main things for autoimmunity being sleep, being sedentary or overtraining, smoking, alcohol consumption, drug consumption, just generally lack of rest, stress, and unhealthy relationships. And I think for the most part that that's nothing new. If you've been on a chronic illness journey, you probably know that all of those things are not great for your health. So probably preaching to the choir at this point in time. And then there are also certain pathogens that may increase thyroid autoimmunity reactions through molecular mimicry. And so what that means is that if you had a pathogen, for example, H. pylori, that's a very common gastrointestinal pathogen, your body starts to produce antibodies to this H. pylori. And then this H. pylori has a very similar protein sequence to your thyroid human tissue. When you produce the antibodies to the H. pylori to attack the H. pylori, you also then start to attack the human tissue with the similar protein tissue, in this case, the thyroid. So if we remove the pathogen from the body, so we do a stool test, we identify H. pylori, we then take some steps to eradicate it, then the antibody levels in the body go down, and then that helps to support the immune system and to reduce the destruction of the thyroid tissue. Now, there are some, you know, this is all the case of how much research is available, but the top pathogen that may be associated with molecular mimicry in Hashimoto's thyroiditis is H. pylori, which is why I use this as an example. And then the second one is toxoplasma gondii, which can be transmitted through cats. So if you've got somebody, if you're somebody who has cats like me, and you know you have Hashimoto's and you want to be really careful about handling cat feces, if you have a litter tray, um, even if you know the cat, for example, gets some of its own feces on its claws and then scratches you, that can be an issue. So you want to be really careful with exposure to cats, but please don't get rid of your cats. Just be really, really careful. And then there are others which may be familiar, like candida, hepatitis C, EBV, herpes virus 6, Borrelia, which is a Lyme disease as well. And then the final thing on the list is just to talk about chemicals and supplements. So chemicals just generally can increase oxidative stress in the body. So we already talked about that liver thyroid connection. If the thyroid is not working well, the liver doesn't work well, and then we can't clear things from the body. But also we live in this very toxic chemical world, and it's very easy for us to become overwhelmed by chemicals generally if we're not taking active steps to reduce the chemicals that we're exposed to, whether that is from the water that we drink, from the air that we breathe, from the foods that we're consuming, or the things that we put on our skin in terms of personal care, or the chemicals that we're using to clean our home. So a low-tox lifestyle, I think, is important just for anyone, chronic illness or not. But in the cases of autoimmunity, if 
the chemical load becomes excessive. Chemicals can bind to proteins in the body, for example, albumin, which is a blood protein. And then we can produce antibodies to the chemical albumin combo. And then when we are exposed to these chemicals, then we this can exacerbate the autoimmunity through, again, cross-reactions with different tissues. So the number one for thyroid autoimmunity is BPA, bisphenol A. And sneaky little place where BPA hangs out is on till receipts. So if you're somebody who always you know, goes to the shops and when they offer you a receipt, you take it, you are potentially exposing yourself to BPA. But BPA is also found in plastic packaging. So the best possible thing you can do is switch to ceramic and glass and just make sure everything is ceramic and glass. You're not drinking out of plastic coffee cups. You take your own ceramic coffee cup if you go for a coffee takeaway. Those are the types of things you want to consider if this is an issue for you. Other things might also be exposure to pesticides on food, air pollution, depending on where you live, in which case you could get a good quality air filter, fire retardants, which are in most of our furniture. So here, buying secondhand furniture, which has actually been off-gassed a bit, can be more beneficial. Benzene, which we may be exposed to from driving in traffic with the window open. And PCBs, perchlorates, and mercury as well, which potentially can be exposed to from a high fish consumption. So there's a lot to think about here. We've talked about foods. We've talked about chemicals. We've talked about pathogens. We've talked about lifestyle interventions. This is something that you would work through over time. You can't go in and address all of these things at once. And also, you know, sometimes people just start with things like balancing their blood sugar and taking some antioxidants and lowering their sodium and going on a paleo diet. And those things can make the world of difference. Then they don't need to get all anxious and obsessive about exploring chemicals or pathogens. So it's usually a step-by-step -step process. We start with the things that are easiest to implement and usually, if possible, the cheapest to implement. And then as time goes on, depending on how someone's doing, you do a little bit more and you do a little bit more and you do a little bit more and so on and so on. So please don't let this episode overwhelm you and think that you have to replace all your kitchenware and buy an air filter and get your mercury amalgams removed or whatever's going on for you. It doesn't work like that. You need to just be slow and gentle and methodical and just take things one step at a time. Where I will finish for today is just talking a little bit about supplements. These are kind of like my top three slash four supplements. Number one, which is probably number one for all my clients is glutathione, just for its role in managing oxidative stress and people with autoimmune conditions have a lot of oxidative stress. Second one more specifically for thyroid hormones or thyroid antibodies is selenium and then vitamins A and D for immune regulation. Obviously, when you're working with somebody with autoimmunity, you may be adding in other supplements which are important to their specific case. Maybe it's something for blood sugar control. Maybe it's something for pathogen in their gut. Maybe it's something else for neuroinflammation in the brain. Maybe it's something to support their liver and detoxification. So every case is different and we need to like evaluate the case, see what this individual need and make the necessary adjustments. But I hope you have enjoyed learning a little bit more about 
thyroid health today. I hope there has been some good takeaway from this episode. And at the time of recording this, at least just to let you know that if you do want more help in your fatigue and chronic illness and health recovery journey, we do have applications open at the moment. You can head over to my website, anamash.co.uk, and you can complete an application to work with us. And I will see you in the next episode.